0: I think it's fair to say really that certainly over the last three to four years there's been a number of important and recent developments in the law on employment status if i go back to 12 13 years ago when i first qualified it wasn't a big an issue as it is now
1: Welcome to today's podcast. We've got the pleasure of being joined by Pav Claire, who's an employment law specialist. Pav's been working in employment law predominantly for the employer for the last 12 years and is going to join us today to share lots of insights in terms of why employment status matters and how you might need to think or rethink some of your contracts or relationships that you perhaps with have with some of your current members of staff or members of your team. So welcome Pav, thank you very much for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me today. And hopefully I'll be able to provide some good insights for your listeners.
1: So as a lawyer, Pav, I've got to ask, first of all, you decided to steer away from the exciting stuff of dealing with big crimes or corporate litigation and went with employment law. What led you down the route of choosing to deal with employment law, which could perhaps seem a very dry topic?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because from when I completed my studies, I always wanted to go into commercial property. But it was only until when you start doing on the job training, part of the training contract, that I realised that I wanted to do something that was a bit more, not as monotonous or as process driven as real estate is, but do something which is more about helping people and dealing with different facts. Because the job that I do, every time the phone rings, every time the client comes on the phone, although the law always stays the same, the facts in relation to the matter can be totally different. So I might be dealing one, day with an employee who has committed a theft and the employer wants to discipline them for that and then half an hour later I could be on a call advising a client on capability related issues or even grievances so it's a vast array of different types of areas of employment law and it's always fascinating to hear the stories that some employer clients have about their staff.
1: So the human relationship element of working with businesses, with that employer-employee relationship brings a lot of variety. And I'm sure the last couple of years must have been absolutely insane for you.
0: Absolutely. I think in terms of when you think of being hit with a new area or a new sort of scheme, when the pandemic first hit and the government rolled out the furlough scheme, that was very much new to us. It wasn't just new to businesses. It wasn't just new to clients. The day that it came out, a couple of days, over the next week or so, we were getting calls from clients in relation to how does this work? What if this happens? And we were just really having to try really hard to bring ourselves up to scratch with what this new scheme was. And once the initial elements of the furlough scheme ran through, we were then having to deal with, redundancies, restructures. So it's been a very busy year and it's showing some sort of signs certainly from my job's perspective of calming down now because it's certainly been 100 miles an hour the last two years. Wow and I'm sure a huge variety again of different situations and
1: different perceptions because I'm guessing a lot of the time what you're having to manage is the perception of the individual's and how they feel the situation is that they are in and to be able to apply the law to it.
0: That's correct. So I do a little bit of advice to employees, but mainly my advice is to employers, but it's not, like you said, it's not just about applying the law. It's about understanding the situation that the individual might be in for those circumstances to occur, and then being able to advise the client and manage the client's emotions in this sometimes, because a lot of employers we act for, that they'd like to take the robust stance, but it's about trying to change the way they're thinking to get a desired outcome and to be able to come out the other side with with a bit of dignity, with a bit of respect for all parties, really.
1: Super. So over the recent years, there's been a lot of discussion in the area of employment law, particularly around this gig economy. Can you describe what the gig economy is and why that's relevant to clinic owners?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I think it's fair to say really that certainly over the last 3 to 4 years there's been a number of important and recent developments in the law on employment status if I go back to 12 13 years ago when I first qualified it wasn't a big an issue as it is now and the reason being is because of these gig economy and the cases in that area have got more press because they're being high profile brands so Uber, Deliveroo. We've probably all heard of Pimlico Plumbers by now. That's gone all the way through to the Supreme Supreme Court. And there's a few others on the pipeline as well. Largely, these cases have focused on whether the said individuals so the claimants in those actions, whether they were an employee or a worker. Now, tribunals are increasingly being asked to look at whether someone's being engaged on a self-employed basis on, in fact, workers, because that's what the main issues came out of in the Uber and Deliveroo cases where they were being set up as self-employed individuals. And it probably seemed very convenient at the time from a tax perspective for them, but also for the company. But obviously things then go wrong as the relationship develops and individuals don't see eye to eye with their employers and then that's where these relationships are very much picked apart. I
1: want wanting just to clarify what the gig economy means if we take it really literal if I was a musician and I was gigging I would perhaps be in a different venue every single night and just return to the same pub once a month but every night of the rest of the month the other i in a different venue. And so therefore, I'm not working every night in the same place. I'm getting paid by a different person every single evening if I'm a musician gigging. Is that what the gig economy truly means? You're operating as a musician who'd be gigging and that you are freelancing in many locations and in in many different ways?
0: Absolutely. Essentially, it's a job by job engagement as such. And the word you use freelancing, contractors, that is what you would normally associate with someone that is self-employed. And that's very much what the gig economy is. So when you think of companies such as Uber, you have taxi drivers, Deliveroo, couriers, there, there are a few other sort of less well-known companies who have been through the courts but a lot of the cases in this area seem to focus on couriers and taxi drivers and obviously Pimlico Plumbers was a a sort of plumbing fit and obviously we'll come on further into sort of uh, as we take the session in terms of how those cases developed and the main categories around status but yeah you're right it focuses more on a job-by-job engagement really and that's effectively what the gig economy is.
1: Yeah. So thinking about the musician that moves around or the band that moves around to different venues every night is the true meaning of what a gig economy would be. So why does this matter, Pav? Why is employment status so important?
0: OK, in, in the UK, there, there are effectively three types or three main categories of employment status. A person can be an employee, which is effectively the gold standard in relation to rights. One down from that. So the second one is a worker status. And the third and final one is a self-employed contractor. Now, as I mentioned, so an employee is your gold standard. So they enjoy the most comprehensive rights available under employment law. Workers then are limited to a subset of those rights. For instance, workers would then have a right to sick pay, not to be discriminated against to be automatically enrolled into a pension scheme, the right to the national minimum wage, the holiday. In in relation to employees, they would have all of those rights, but they would also have the right not to be, for example, unfairly dismissed or a right to a redundancy payment. So employees and workers, That, in terms of going back to those cases I mentioned, that's why it was so important for those individuals to, for wanting to be classed at least as workers, because they would have then had the right to the national minimum wage and annual leave entitlement. Whereas if you're a genuinely self-employed contractor, you have very limited statutory protections and you simply would rely on the terms of your contract that are in place between you and the hiring company or the, or the client, we can call them. So it's literally limited to, I've done a job, I need to get paid for it. That's pretty much the only thing you have as a contractor.
1: So a little bit like when you recruit somebody to, a plum, you, you find the individual plumber to come and fit your new bathroom for you. There's no employment relationship. You're just paying
0: for job done. Exactly. And you could say the same for an electrician, a decorator, for example. So they come in, they quote for the job. They don't have any obligations to do it. If the client accepts it, the client accepts it. If the client decides to reduce the fee or the or whatever it costs to do the job, it's up to the plumber, the electrician, the decorator to say no and move on. Whereas if you're an employee, and we'll come on to this, I suppose, in a bit more detail in, in a few seconds, but in terms of an employee and a worker, you very much have much tighter control by the yeah, or the company or the business that's engaging you.
1: Okay, so what is the definition to differentiate or test, particularly between all three of them, but particularly between worker and employee?
0: Sure. So there are statutory definitions of employee and worker, but they're very unhelpful, notoriously unhelpful. So uh, what I won't do as part of our chat today is bore you with the definition in the employment, but effectively what's actually driven this area is and define the legal position is case law over many years. Frustratingly, there is no sort of set or definitive list in relation to what makes an individual an employee, what makes them a worker as opposed to a self-employed individual. But there there have been certain, not certain, but there definitely is three key elements in the test for determining employed over self-employed. And this, like I said, it's been developed over a number of years by case law. The first Part of the test is personal service. That's effectively what it says on the tin, to be honest with you. It's a very core element of the relationship of an employee to an employer and a worker to the business in that neither an employee or worker have an unfettered right of substitution. They must carry out the work themselves, whereas looking at genuinely self-employed individuals so looking at the plumber example looking at the electrician the decorator they could if they're very busy that week or if they work for a bigger company they could easily send somebody else to do the job. So there isn't that element of personal service. There is that right of what the law calls substitution. Obviously, the substitute has to be reasonably qualified. You can't just send your brother in to decorate someone's house. It's got to be someone of suitable qualification. But that's one of the tests in relation to status. The second one is also a very important one, and it's called control. That that seems quite obvious, one might think, in terms of an employee-worker relation, a worker-to-employer relationship. But this goes back 100, 200 years. This very definition, and it revolves around. And I don't like to say these terms, but they are the traditional terms of master and servant, effectively, and that's that is what an employer, how an employer would see. An employee or a worker, and what one of the leading judgments actually on control defined it as effectively the power of deciding the thing to be done, the way in which it has to be done, the means to be employed in doing it, the time of when and the place of where it shall be done. So I suppose when you literally take that meaning and you think about the employee and worker relationship, you can see how yeah, actually there probably is that control there because an employer wants something done in a certain way, they. Want it done by a certain deadline, whereas with the self-employed model, uh, an individual has a—you could call it a schedule of works or a scope. So, one wants their house painting. Now, it's up to the individual, the contractor, to, to d- decide which rooms they're doing on a Monday, which rooms they're doing on a Tuesday. So, that's the type of difference really we're talking about. And the third test is mutuality of obligation. So. That effectively means that in order for someone to be an employee or a worker, the employer has to have an obligation to provide work to the individual. And then the individual has an obligation to do that work. In in your typical employee-employer relationship, if you were told by your boss to do a particular task, you would more than likely do it because otherwise there'd be a bit of insubordination there. Whereas... It's totally different from the self-employed and plumber example I gave earlier, whereby if a plumber goes out, scopes a job, doesn't really like it, they don't have to do it. Or if they scope for it, then the client doesn't really have to accept it. So there, there, there has to be that sort of obligation to have to provide something and have to do it for the employment status test to be triggered, really. You can
1: see that this must cause quite a lot of grey areas in The service sector and we are going to come on to clinics in a moment but straight away you're making me think about like the difference between a plumber or a decorator that comes in to fit your bathroom decorate the rooms and actually if they're not free and their mate comes around as long as they do a good job you're happy you just want the quality of the job done but if it was a nanny for example that's completely different if they're coming and caring for your child you might well have much more specification in terms of how that care is delivered and this obligation for the times and the location. So I can imagine this has created quite a lot of grey areas within the service industry. I'm just thinking of the home because we were using the the plumber there.
0: Yeah, I think you're totally right because over the years and certainly the time that I've been practicing, it's I think the toughest to differentiate between is the employee and worker relationship because they're so tightly seen in terms of the control is more than likely there because you're going to tell a worker in the same way as an employee what to do and you're going to want it done in a certain way. The personal service that there's a tick on that test when it comes to both. However, where the differentiating factor maybe is around the mutuality of obligation. So, for example, let's say if you have certain zero zero hours work, so that, so they contract, so they're not contracted to a guaranteed number of hours, but their contract may well state that we. Can provide you with the hours. So it doesn't say we will provide you with the hours. It can say we can provide you with the hours, but when we provide you with the hours, you must do them or we can provide you with the hours and it's up to you whether you'd like to accept them. So that is more of a sort of worker relationship because there's a sort of diluted mutuality of obligation there. Whereas if you're saying in an employment contract, you will work 40 hours a week or you will work 35 hours a week, then that's set in stone. They have to work those hours. They can't wake up on a Tuesday morning and say, actually, call up their line managers, actually, I don't feel like coming in today, in the same way as a worker or a self-employed person could. Because, okay, if you're a worker and you turn down hours, the and especially in care sectors and the warehousing logistics sector, if you turn down hours, there's no guarantee that they're going to call upon you again because they mm. can't really trust you or rely on you because you can turn the hours down so there is a lot of gray area in terms of a worker and employment status and I suppose workers are probably in that hybrid situation aren't they really we like the word hybrid at the moment don't we hybrid work in hybrid cars but workers are more of a hybrid because they're not full-blown employee but they're not fully independent like contractors are so in, in terms of the key differentiating point for a worker status, in most cases will be that they are required to perform the work personally, but there's not they're not going to be subject to the same degree of control that an employee is. And certainly the mutuality of obligation is likely to be watered down a lot more than it would for an employee. And I think the key here for... Any business engaging staff should be really to look closely at the relationship that you're trying to create. So actually working, what services do you need providing? On what basis, what type of control are you going to have? And I think that will help you. And certainly the listeners, that'll help them map out exactly what they're looking for here because ultimately what i mentioned right at the start was that sometimes businesses and employers they dive into this self-employed scenario and it's only when things start going wrong because not every individual is going to see eye to eye with the other and it's only when the relationship turns sour that employment status issues and unfair dismissal and i have uh national minimum wage rights and holiday rights it's only at that point that those start turning their head so it's very important that at the beginning of the sort of engagement that a business actually works out okay what do we need from these individuals how are we going to effectively manage that relationship and in relation to certainly the mutuality of obligation point are we going to expect someone to accept work if it's offered? And are we going to be under an obligation to offer it in the first place? Because that's a very important point, I think. This
1: is really interesting, Pav, because there are going to be a lot of clinics out there that are running on a self-employment model. Mm. There's going to be a lot of clinic owners that have set up relationships with their team members where the team member, the other clinicians, are self-employed. Now, in some instances, that the self-employed person might well be working say two days a week in the NHS and then two days a week in an independent clinic but when you're describing the fact that they are required to turn up on time they're required to deliver the service at a particular location there is some framework in terms of how they deliver the service it might not be Precisely prescriptive in terms of what the treatment modality is, but it will probably be prescriptive in terms of what the duration is. And there'll be some expectations because the clinic owners obviously wanting to protect their clinics branding and have some consistency in the service that they're delivering. You're you're suggesting that there's probably actually a large number of self employed clinicians out there who are workers or employees. And many clinic owners that haven't perhaps taken the time to define exactly what it is they want from their team members and have therefore been unable to get the clarification that you're perhaps suggesting they need to find in terms of what employment status they need their team members to to have to be able to meet the commitments that the business requires.
0: Exactly. And I think it's obviously it's more of an issue for existing businesses who are already working to a certain model. And if that model is a self-employed model, I, w- one of my sort of recommendations and my top tips would have to be that they review that model. They review whether or not and consider whether or not that is still a viable model in terms of reality and where we are now, because in terms of what might have been the reasoning For having that model two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, the reality of the situation might be, as you say, they are controlling the hours they work, they are coming in wearing the uniform for that clinic, that they are following certain policies and procedures. Because ultimately, when I think businesses employ self employed people, they just think automatically that, yeah, this person's self employed because. I don't pay them, they provide me with an invoice for the services, whether it's inclusive, exclusive, or VAT, and then I just pay the invoice. Unfortunately, that's just one of a very sort of minor number of factors. The key factors are the personal service con- control and mutuality of obligation. And if there is a little bit of truth to the individual sort of being covered in any one of those areas certainly the first two then we're probably in worker territory unfortunately
1: the majority of clinic owners that have perhaps taken this route of having self-employed team members won't have wanted the fine I'm going to assume for the majority of them it's because they won't have wanted to have the financial commitment of having employees and they won't have wanted to have the commitment of having to generate enough work enough clients Mm -hmm. to fill that individual's diary so therefore they've chosen a self-employment model thinking that that's not going to create such a financial burden for them whereas in actual fact what they're doing is creating themselves a big liability with regards to employment law because certainly if they've taken the time to recruit the right clinician they want the service from them they certainly perhaps they have it scheduled that the clinician's available on a Tuesday and a Friday between nine and five now, if the first client isn't booked in until, let's say 10 o'clock, they will still expect that person, that clinician to turn up at 10 o'clock. They might not care if they're not there at nine, but they'll expect them to be there at 10 o'clock. They won't. The clinician says, oh, no, I don't fancy coming in today. That won't be acceptable. They won't get offered any work again. They'll be off the list. I'm thinking for the majority of clinics that have a self-employed model, actually, they're, re- they're meeting the employment status because they do want the personal service they do want the individual they've selected to turn up and deliver the service they have got the element of control in terms of wanting them coming to a specific location to deliver the service they're not saying yes here's mrs smith Off you go take treat her at home or wherever you want they're wanting it done on their premises and they have some elements of control or consistency that are built into how their practice operates that need to be met And they certainly, with regards to this mutuality, are wanting people to turn up if the work is booked in. There's not the option of not turning up. And this is a very good reason for being sick. So what are the consequences of having the wrong employment status? How seriously do these clinic owners need to take this?
0: yeah it's i suppose in terms of the employment risks it's the risk of back pay really that that's the that's the biggie here in terms of the if they're classified even as workers then they're entitled to the national minimum wage so it will mean going back and working out all of the hours that they worked the fee that they were paid for those hours and whether or not that was above the national minimum wage. And if it wasn't, then there could be a claim for that. We are talking holiday entitlement. So the entitlement is 28 days, including bank holidays. So they could be potentially on the hook for that. And in terms of obviously, if they're classed with the gold standard of employment rights, then if that relationship did turn sour, and the self-employed clinician or physiotherapist was told that they're no longer required and they terminated the relationship. If that relationship was for over two years, that individual could submit a claim for unfair dismissal. And in relation to an unfair dismissal claim, you are talking sort of several tens of thousands in terms of compensation, depending on whether or not that claim is successful and also whether they're able to show that they had employment status. But I think it's not just an employment risk, there is also a tax risk to all of this, because obviously, for however period of, however long that period of time of engagement was, if they're classed as workers or employees, there's going to be a lot of unpaid taxes, unpaid national insurance contributions, and unfortunately, the MRC are going to come after the party with the bigger pockets unfortunately. And the physiotherapist or the self-employed person that was employed and that brought the initial claim, they might hold their hands up and say, I can't afford it. I've I've not got any money. That's even if they're successful with just a worker claim. Obviously, any sums that are paid out as part of an award at a court or tribunal would have to be taxed by the employer before they paid that award to the individual. But obviously, in terms of back taxes and national insurance contributions, there might be some liabilities there in that respect, and as well as sort of interest penalties and other financial liabilities. So it's not one area to be taken lightly. And I definitely think that employers and businesses ensure that they know the full extent of the re- effectively the relationship they're entering into before they enter into that. And they know their obligation. Individ- and it's only fair that individuals should know their entitlements as well, of course. And I think the main thing that I would like listeners to take away from this session is that setting out the relationship early and the obligations of each party early avoids disputes later down the line that's the most important lesson I think that can be learned from employment status certainly from any sort of employment Mm -hmm. law issue but more more so from a status perspective I think.
1: So It's about the clinic owner really taking ownership that they are the CEO of a business Mm -hmm. even if the business is very small and really before they take on any other team members outlining what the job role is that they need somebody to join their practice for and being really clear on what the expectations of that role are and how it's going to be delivered, because that will mean any person joining, well, both can be trained and managed better, but also mean that they're able to clarify what the employment status is going to be of the person that they're bringing on, and then they can recruit accordingly and safely as well, knowing that everybody is protected by the employment law and they're not creating themselves a massive liability. For the business owner that recognises, for the clinic owner that recognises is listening to this thinking, oh, shucks, <laughs> I've got a team of self-employed clinicians and I can't afford the liabilities of all of this if I ever get found out, what do they do? Where do they begin in trying to unpick the muddle that they perhaps have created for themselves?
0: I think the key thing is just to try and stay calm and do that initial, let's say, the, the initial sort of sift in terms of analysing that relationship and if it is the case that yes we're bordering on worker status here I think some of the things that need to be just before I actually come to the answer of that is one of something that I picked up what you mentioned earlier Kate was around sort of the appointments issue is that I suppose if it's if the industry is one whereby whether you're a self-employed person or whether you're an employee or worker if a if the appointments aspect of that client relationship is actually quite a fundamental aspect, which it is from what I understand, then I don't think it's going to be really a sort of differentiating factor because I think more more so is the question of the work in the first place. So it's not that the appointments in the diary, it's whether or not that appointment has been offered up to the individual sort of physiotherapist and they've accepted it i think that is more the point really if obviously they've declined that appointment then there's no you can say there's no mutuality of obligation couldn't you whereas if they've accepted it then the appointment is pretty much a red herring i think because it's it would have been there in, in in either case anyway so i think so turning back to the question of what do we do i think it's a case of not rushing into any decisions it, it's difficult to say in terms of each individual scenario that there's always a way to smooth things through if you, if you think that there's a quite a big liability perhaps having that conversation with the individual and explaining to them that look you have over the years up to that point you have benefited from this relationship we've benefited from the relationship but from this point on we have to draw a line and you have to be engaged as we need to give you those rights even if it, that's just More from a tax perspective, really, because I think that's the only thing that you could probably that's in your power really to control is to do things in a tax efficient way going forward, even if you haven't. Whereas the employment thing by actually or the worker status issue, by actually flagging it to them, are you doing anything that they wouldn't have had a right to anyway? So it's it's perhaps thinking about that, because even if you don't tell them and the relationship deteriorates, then they still, if they have a chance of being classified as an employee or a worker, they're always going to be in that claim anyway, aren't they? So by just dealing with it head on months or years earlier, might obviously help the sort of relationship and how that develops. So I think every sort of, and as is with sort of the Uber case, the Deliveroo case, the Pimlico Plumbers case, And I think this is in true lawyer fashion, I'm saying this, but every case honestly does revolve around its own facts and not every one case is the same. So I wouldn't want the listeners to start getting worried about sort of their current models, whether the models stack up, because a lot of the cases that have developed the case law in this area were well, very much, they revolved around their own facts. I'll give you one example from, I think it was the Uber case, actually, where some of the evidence that the claimants were putting forward was that in, in terms of the control and mutuality of obligation aspect, they were saying, right, there was this app that we had to go on to and we had the choice. Yeah, definitely, we had the choice of whether to accept a job or reject it. However, In that particular circumstance, in that particular scenario, they had these benefits for a gold driver, and you could only get gold status if you actually did a certain amount of jobs in a week. So in fact, the courts found that, hang on a minute, that's not really a mutuality of obligation, is it then? Because you aren't indirectly not giving that person an option whether to choose. They have to take it if they want to get the gold standard. So that's just a bit of an example of how every sort of scenario can differ. So it's it's probably best not to panic do an initial analysis and then perhaps take some HR or legal advice really on, on the area to talk about strategies and how to deal with it.
1: And for the majority of clinics say we'll take this part time self-employed physio that's there on a Tuesday and Friday again nine to five they won't be given a choice If somebody calls in on the monday people will just be booked directly into the diary they won't be telephoned to say are you okay to accept mrs smith at 12 o'clock on wednesday or 12 o'clock on tuesday sorry mrs smith will just be booked straight directly into their diary so i think it's like exactly as you're saying going back to rewriting the job description Mm. for your business to operate well what is it that you're needing these other team members to do and what does success look like and what are the requirements of success for these other team members within your business, and then you can determine when you know what the requirements of those team members are, what their employment status is going to be or needs to be to ensure that your business achieves what it wants to achieve by having extra team members.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And how much importance is there on the actual written contract, Pav? How much importance is placed on the actual text document that's signed between employer and team member whatever status they are
0: yeah yeah contracts have always and I think whichever sort of whether you're signing up to a contract with a supplier or a client or your staff contracts are always important and certainly from a status point of view it's it is an important indicator of the relationship between the parties which you could say they intended to create from day one but I suppose what case law has consistently, consistently demonstrated is that a tribunal will, will always look beyond the contract. So they will look at the everyday reality of the relationship and scrutinise it from that day-to-day working perspective, really, to determine the status of the individual. So in terms of points that we spoke about earlier, which was, understanding what the relationship is from the very start because obviously depending on everyone most of the clients that I've advised on this area always tended to dive into the self-employed scenario because it was more tax efficient and beneficial for both parties whereas and that's how the contracts were drawn up however when they obviously went into the reality of the situation and as we're obviously talking about the physio issues and how they're currently self-employed but actually the reality of the situation doesn't really tell us that and it doesn't really align to that status then a tribal tribunal or a court is more likely to say the contract's a bit of a sham really because it's basically it's not worth the paper it's written on because what it says isn't what is being done in 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 reality and i think effectively masking an employment relationship with a worker contract or a consultancy agreement can it it will not can it will prove costly in the future for the clinics and as i said the liabilities include back pay the liabilities include tax liabilities so it all stems back to day one what do we need here what are we entering into and just making sure that's as consistent to the real life relationship as as possible, really.
1: And I think there's a lot of benefits for any clinic owners that are listening thinking, oh gosh, really, I better cross this threshold to employing some of my team members. I actually think there's some real benefits to employing team members because you have a lot more investment in training them, in creating consistency in terms of how service is delivery, in staggering annual leave. So not everybody's off the same week at Christmas because it needs approval, there's a lot of benefits and extra commitment that can come from having an, having employed members of staff, rather than just having self-employed.
0: Absolutely, and I second that. Obviously, each, what well, one might say, each status has its sort of pros and cons, really, taking on someone as a self-employed person, you have obviously the tax advantages. However, for the employer, then like you said, I think it's valid points around sort of cover if you, who's on annual leave, when they're on annual leave. And it's about the workplace culture as well. I think we over, often overlook that and consultants and self-employed individuals won't always feel part of the team as an employee or a worker does. So it's all very important factors to take into account.
1: And if somebody, a clinic owner, decides to employ some of their team, do they have to give them a fixed salary, such as what the NHS model would be? Or could they give them perhaps a basic salary plus bonus so that they're not, as the clinic owner, terrified about what the financial commitments might be for making somebody employed? And equally, the employee becomes incentivized because if they do a good job, they're going to get bonus pay.
0: Yeah, and that's often something that I've seen in, in, in this particular industry is, is a model which is basic salary is a lot lower than one might expect in a different industry but then you you would have allowances and bonuses and even commission which then bumps that up depending on performance and i think that is the way that a lot of clinics and businesses within the industry i think that's that tends to be the model i think that they probably do choose i think certainly in in terms of the service sector as well in terms of obviously overtime's an additional thing but obviously that's not in terms of the performance that they're currently doing that's an overtime allowance but certainly commission and bonuses is quite commonplace really
1: and can somebody be employed by two people? So, for example, as a clinic owner, could I have a team member who's employed two days a week in the NHS and employed two days a week in my practice as well?
0: Certainly, that's right. So they don't have to be full time, permanent, permanent staff, really. They can be part time. So it, it would just be that the salary would just would be prorated for what the full time equivalent was. And the same thing with the annual leave entitlements.
1: Super. Thank you, Pab. Yeah. Have you got any final tips for listeners who are thinking about engaging in employing some of their staff?
0: Sure, yeah. And I think it's really very much a consolidation point for me, Kay. It's to encourage listeners and clinic owners that a lot of the tribunal decisions and court decisions in this area, I think, and I feel that they serve as a useful reminder, really, that if you're looking at engaging individuals or staff that you need to ensure that the contract reflects the reality of the situation and certainly those who started off those who have already started off and are employing individuals I'd certainly highly recommend that they conduct some sort of analysis to see that the reality of the situation is still as they contracted to one or two years ago but obviously on the other hand those those clinic owners that are very much in their startup journey to really think about the type of individuals that you're going to require to perform services and reflect the status that you award that person appropriately and it's detailed appropriately in contractual documentation.
1: Super thank you and finally how does a clinic owner decide whether they need a HR professional to help them with this or an employment lawyer like yourself?
0: sure that's also a difficult one (laughs) but i think in terms of in terms i've always been a strong advocate that elements like and we can obviously cover these off in in podcast to come. But if the issue is more of a, let's say, a disciplinary grievance issue, then I think HR consultants are perfectly qualified to deal with that type of area. But I think when it crosses that legal divide and becomes more complex, and it could result in a tribunal claim, and status issues are involved, or there's a very serious sort of long-term sickness issue, or for example, you need to exit an individual, then I think that's when you probably safer to be placed in sort of legal hands rather than HR hands but obviously I might be being biased there. That's
1: brilliant thank you very much for your help and your insights today Pav that's been absolutely invaluable the gems that you've shared with us there thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening if you found this podcast valuable here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, visit www.marklandmethod.com forward slash grow. There you'll find access to the free Profit Without Pills program. You'll also have opportunity to register for the free web class, the triage call, and you'll be able to sign up for the weekly email newsletter where you get hints and tips on how to create a profitable and sustainable practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can get access to influential people and speakers and bring them here so that they can share their lessons with you.